All right, let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another week. We thank you for the, the fun time that we've had this weekend with the, the men's outing. We thank you for all the blessings that you have shown to us. And we ask that you would bless our time together, that we would be able to learn and grow closer to you and walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. It's hard to believe we're on week three of walking with Christ. It seems like it's going pretty quick. At least it does from my perspective. I don't know if it is for you. Now, if you remember from last week, I left you with homework, right? I know you're happy about that. The homework asks you to prayerfully consider your own heart, to look at your own heart, to see if you have idols in your own heart, right? And idols are those desires, those things that we exalt above the knowledge of God. We seek after them apart from God and apart from Christ. And I'm not asking you if you did, but if you did the homework, you may have felt kind of like, this guy. Anyone ever felt like this guy before? You have one of those days? You commit a sin, you do something you know is wrong, you're not very happy about it, and you just, it's one of those face palms. You just, it's a rough day. Well, there's a reason you feel that way. And the reason is, is because God has given you something called a conscience. And that's what we're going to talk about to begin with today is the conscience. What is it? How does it function? Stuff like that. So let's first ask the question, is this even a biblical idea? And for those of you who don't know, yes, that is Jiminy Cricket. And if you don't know who Jiminy Cricket is, you'll find out why he's in the presentation in a minute. For everyone who's laughing, you know who he is. Is this a biblical term? Yes, it is a biblical term. Sunidasis. Did I get that right? Sunidasis? All right. Huh? Sounds good. All right. It is found in Scripture. It's used in two primary ways in Scripture. The first is to describe just a general awareness of sin. It's just describing a person who is aware of the fact that there is sin in their life. Uh, Hebrews 10, verse 2, having once been cleansed would no longer have had consciousness of sin. So the word is just describing the awareness, the recognition that there is sin in someone's life. The second way this word is used is to describe some aspect of the human being called a conscience. Uh, Romans 2, verse 15, their conscience bearing witness. There's some aspect of humanity that tells you there's sin in your life. Okay? The Puritan Richard Sibbs defined it this way. The conscience is the soul reflecting upon itself. If you think of it like a computer diagnostic software, you have diagnostic software on your computer, that software examines the computer itself to tell you if there's a problem with the computer. There is a part of your soul that examines itself to tell you if there's a problem. John MacArthur described it this way. It is an innate ability to sense right and wrong. This is a God-given gift to tell you when there's a problem. It is something that you have that you are born with, and it's something that you will keep with you for the rest of your life. Hey, Mike, is it on? Yeah? Okay. Uh, MacArthur continues this way. The conscience entreats us to do what we believe is right and restrains us from doing what we believe is wrong. It is a human faculty that judges our actions and our thoughts by the light of the highest standard we perceive. It helped 
it encourages you to do what you're supposed to do. It tries to restrain you from doing what you're not supposed to do. I want you to notice the last phrase there. It's by the highest standard that we perceive. That's going to come back to play in a minute. So let's do a little negative theology. What is the conscience? What is it not? First, the conscience is not a moral teacher. You cannot learn morality from your conscience. You can't just walk through life and let me participate in this activity. Oh, my conscience says that's wrong. Okay, that's wrong. That's not how it works. It's like when I was a little kid, I was about that high. And I wanted to find out if the stove was hot. And so instead of asking, I went over and touched the stove. That's not how you use your conscience. The conscience does not teach morality. Secondly, it is not a source of moral revelation. This is not the Jesus pipeline that pipes down new information to you from Jesus like he's revealing something new to you. It's not some mystical experience that God communicates directly with you. And because it's not divine revelation, your conscience is also not infallible. Your conscience can be wrong. It has been wrong before, and it'll be wrong again. It is not infallible. The last one, your conscience is not. I have a very uh, deep theological short video I'd like to show you. It's very deep. Here we go. Okay, you've now met Jiminy Cricket, if you didn't know who he was. Yes, that's the last thing. Your conscience is not your guide. There are people who walk through this world, and if it feels right, that means it's right. Their conscience is the final source of what is good and what is wrong. That is not how your conscience is supposed to be used. And if you use it that way, you're going to be just like Pinocchio. You're going to crash and burn. Okay? <laughs> now, I want to give you three reasons why your conscience should not be your guide. Okay? Three reasons. And as we go through these, it's gonna, we're going to learn more about the conscience as we go. Okay? The first... Your conscience can be misinformed. Your conscience can be misinformed. Now, in order to understand this, you have to realize that your conscience is not merely a feeling or an emotion. It's not some mystical experience that functions inside of you and you just don't know how it works and you know, you're just receiving some vague information. It's not a feeling or an emotion. Feelings and emotions are utilized by your conscience. Your conscience uses them to warn you when you have a problem, but that is not how your conscience functions. Your conscience functions and determines what is right and wrong, not by how you feel, but according to what you know. Your conscience operates just like the computer software. That diagnostic software has information. It tells that software what is right and what is wrong. You have information in your head, in your heart, that informs your conscience. John MacArthur said this, the conscience functions like a skylight, not a light bulb. It lets light into the soul. It does not produce its own. Its effectiveness is determined by the amount of pure light we expose it to. The conscience does not innately know what is right and what is wrong. You have to inform it of what is right and what is wrong. It's not something that God just miraculously has told you everything that is right and everything that is wrong, and you don't have to do anything. Your conscience has to be trained. It has to be taught. You can be ignorant here. 
Hebrews uh, 5, verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Your conscience needs to be trained on distinguishing between right and wrong. Even Paul, the Pharisee of the Pharisees, who said, according to the law, I am what? Blameless. He turned around and said this, 1 Timothy 1, verse 13, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. So if your conscience has to be informed, I'm sure everyone's conscience here today is working to some degree, what informs your conscience? Where does your conscience get its information? Well, there's a few sources that you probably don't want to be using, but your conscience is using it. The first one is tradition. This could be church tradition. Well, in my church, we've always prayed to Mary. That's just what we've done. And because that's what your conscience has been trained to, it doesn't tell you you have a problem when you do it. And it's perfectly okay. Or they'll use life experience. The experiences that you've had in life will inform your conscience. And your conscience will determine something is right or wrong, not based on what God says about it, but what's based on your own personal experience. I did this the last time, and it seemed like a good idea, and it worked out well for me, therefore it must be right. Or false teaching. A lot of false teachers, you listen to them on the radio, you hear them on, in Christian music, and you inform your conscience according to that false teaching, that false doctrine. And you start believing it, and you start behaving according to it, and your conscience goes off the information that you have. The final one is just an improper understanding. Everyone in this room has opened up Scripture, read and studied, and came to a wrong conclusion. Okay? All of these things inform your conscience to one degree or another. All of these things can lead you astray, and they can give you the bad information, and your conscience will tell you something's wrong when it's not, or your conscience will tell you it's right when it's wrong. What are we supposed to use to inform our conscience? Word of God, Scripture. That's why you need that constant intake, constantly adjusting your mind and your beliefs according to what Scripture says, because that is what your conscience is going to use to make decisions. This is an instrument that God has given you for your sanctification. If you're not informing your conscience, you're depriving yourself of a very useful instrument in sanctification. So that's the first reason your conscience should not be your guide. Your conscience can be misinformed, and your conscience can be ignorant. Second reason, your conscience can be overactive. What do we mean by an overactive conscience? This is a conscience that's hypersensitive, that gets easily offended. Scriptures refer to this as a weak conscience. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7, he says, However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak. A weak conscience is an overactive conscience that is easily wounded. They have not informed their conscience, or their conscience is informed by a whole bunch of wrong information, and they are offended by easy, small little things that a more mature believer would not be offended by. Well, I can't eat pork. 
Well, why not? Because I don't think we should be eating pork. That's a weak conscience. What's the result of a weak conscience? Legalism. They're so used to having their conscience offend them and hurt them, and they get all these negative emotions because of it, that they start building walls, and the walls are rules that they set for themselves to try to protect their conscience, to protect them from those negative feelings that they keep experiencing as a result of this weak conscience. Romans 14, verses 1 and 2, he says this, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Notice the person with the weak conscience avoids certain foods. They've created rules to avoid this and avoid that, and I'm only going to eat this. It's a form of legalism. What's another result of this? It robs you of Christian liberty. Having a weak conscience that's overactive, hypersensitive, is going to take away the liberty that you are supposed to have in Christ. Galatians 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. He's specifically talking about being subject to the law again and following all those little rules. A weak conscience will cause you to go back and create new rules for yourself. Anybody know how the Pharisees developed? You probably know. The Pharisees are this rule-keeping sect. Do you know how they developed? They developed in the intertestamental period. They just came out of exile. They had been judged repeatedly for idolatry and breaking the law of God. And so this group began to develop all these little rules to put a gap between them and actually violating the law. It was done to try to protect themselves, and it turned into a system of legalism. They were just trying to avoid breaking the law and getting in trouble with God. That's kind of like what we do with our conscience. We don't want our conscience to be offended, so we're going to make all these little rules to protect ourselves. How many of you have met someone with a weak conscience? They want to make all these little rules for themselves. Anybody? Yeah? Don't ever encourage them to violate their conscience. Don't ever do that. If you know what is right and you refuse to do it, to you it is what? It is sin. It is sinful for someone to violate, to ignore their own conscience. And for you to encourage them to ignore it, you to encourage them to go against their conscience, would be sinful. Jesus spoke about people who encourage others to do this in Matthew 18. He said, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. When you encourage another believer to violate their own conscience, to go against their own conscience, you're encouraging them to act in a sinful way. And God really doesn't appreciate that very much. If you have a weak conscience... If your conscience is hyperactive and hypersensitive, you need to recognize it about yourself. But if someone is encouraging you to do something that is against your conscience, let's say you're the person who says, well, I can't eat pork. I don't eat pork at all. And you come over to my house, and I know you don't eat pork, 
and I'm serving pork chops wrapped in bacon. <laughs> and I put that down in front of me. I'm going to say, I'm going to help this brother or sister. I'm going to, here you go. Go ahead, eat. What should you do? No, thanks. You don't violate your own conscience. What's the proper response here? You have a weak conscience. You have brothers and sisters telling you you shouldn't have this rule. What's the appropriate response? The appropriate response is open up Scripture and look to see if Scripture affirms your belief that this is or is not wrong. And you do not engage in that behavior until you are convinced that Scripture allows it. And how do you know when you're convinced? When your conscience no longer accuses you. When your conscience no longer plaguing you for engaging in that behavior. Does that make sense? Questions? No, yeah, yeah. If you know it's a sin, there's no need to pray about it. You know, there's no need to pray about adultery. You know it's a sin. There's no need to look any further. Um, what are some other areas? Well, I was going to say, uh, white lies. There, it can go either way. You know, you do a white lie to protect that person. From, uh, okay, a wife says, "Do I look nice?" And you go, "Yeah." And that may not be true. That's a white lie, right? Or you, or you know, you know what I'm saying. So th- there's a conscious battle going on. In your yeah. Head. You know, do I tell this one? <laughs> <laughs> I had to I, answer I, with fear and trembling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let, let's use a different one. White lies is a good one. Let's use a little bit different one. During World War II in Germany. There were Christians and other people who were protecting Jews. And the Nazis would come to their house and they would ask them a simple question. Are you hiding Jews? And they have Jews under the floorboards. So technically, yes, that would be a lie to say, no, I don't have any Jews. And so that is a, that is a lie, right? Some people would say that's perfectly acceptable. And their conscience wouldn't bother them. Other people would have a real problem with lying. I personally don't think that God has put any situations on this world that you would have to lie to get out of. He controls all things. That's my personal belief. There's also a third option to not speak. Just stay quiet, yeah. So I, I would be hesitant to say, yes, you need to lie in this situation. But again, let's just talk about the conscience and that way we don't get too far off. Um, Should you violate your conscience in that situation? No. Regardless of what side of that issue you fall on, if your conscience is plaguing you, should you violate the conscience um, in that situation and tell a lie when your conscience is telling you, don't do it, don't tell a lie? No, you shouldn't violate your conscience. Now, if your conscience is telling you to sin, you, you probably need to check again.
a great example of the entertainment. What movies are you going to watch? Well, there's also omission and commission. How far do you can go on omission before you have committed a sin? There's a lot of different ways we can take that. But the whole, the whole point here is you want to protect your conscience. You don't want to be just ignoring what your conscience is telling you. So if there's a movie that your conscience is saying, I can't watch this, and all your friends are saying, yes, you can, you need to follow what your conscience says and don't watch the movie until you're convinced by Scripture that that is acceptable for you. Here's one of the reasons, here's another reason why you shouldn't let your conscience be your guide. And this will tie into what we're talking about here. You can have a seared conscience. 1 Timothy 4.2, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. When I got on the ship, I was in the Navy, by the way. When I got on the ship, the ship has a whole bunch of metal everywhere, and a lot of the metal surfaces have non-skid. They're abrasive, and they're designed to make sure your rubber boots don't slide when they're wet. So this is hard metal material that's rough to make sure your boots don't slip. But when you're climbing ladders, your hands end up going on that rough material, and it starts causing damage to your hands. And for the first couple of weeks I was on the ship, my hands were sore from going up ladders and going through hatches. And after a few weeks, my hands didn't hurt anymore. What changed? It wasn't the, the stuff that I was coming in contact with. What changed, what changed was my hands were developing calluses on them. And the calluses were hardening the skin. And so it wasn't that my hands were no longer being damaged by that material. It was simply that I was incapable of feeling the damage that was being done. A seared conscience is the same thing. Your conscience has become hardened. It no longer responds to the pain. You can no longer feel the pain of the sin. When you ignore your conscience, you are searing your conscience. You are making it easier for yourself to sin. How do you sear your conscience? Repeatedly ignoring the warnings. Your conscience is telling you, don't do it, and you do it anyway. Uh heard a story of a young lady. She was 16. She was a devout believer. Her parents were devout believers. They were active in their church. And one day this young lady comes home and she's pregnant. She's devastated. Her parents are devastated. She actually goes into a state of depression. So they take her to the hospital and they take her to a quote-unquote Christian psychologist who sits down with this young lady. He begins speaking with her. She explains what's going on, how she's feeling. He responds to her. He says, you know what your problem is? Guilt. And what you need to do is go out and have as many relationships with as many people as you can until you no longer feel guilty. Now that advice is perfectly consistent with modern psychology because in modern psychology, guilt is nothing more than a feeling and it's the problem. And so anything you can do to get rid of the feeling is good. But that's not very consistent with a Christian teaching, is it? He's telling her, go out and engage in the sin until you no longer feel guilty. Go out and sear your own conscience and deaden it so it no longer functions. Here's another one. Blaming mental illness for your behavior rather than repenting of sin. Well, I drink alcohol the way I do because I'm an alcoholic and it's a disease. Well, I'm, I lose my temper because I have this condition. It 
and it's an emotional problem. So I can't really control the fact that I lose my temper and I hurt people in my family. Any attempt to suppress, overrule, or silence the conscience is a means of searing the conscience. And you literally deprive yourself of a tool that God has given you for your sanctification. What's the result of a seared conscience? I came up with one really good answer. It's, it's silence. The conscience just stops telling you there's a problem. You can engage in the sin and you no longer feel it. That, that picture we showed of the guy with his face in his hands, you no longer get to that point. You don't feel anything. They may be silent, but I think they still know it's sin because like your psychologist said, he didn't recommend doing anything good. He, no. he knows what sin is. And I, I've been around people where, or heard of people where they, they do certain activities, but if a Christian does it, they know they did something wrong. So to me, they may... I think if you're talking about someone who's been exposed to the truth, let's say someone who's been sitting in a church for six years, and they intentionally sear their conscience on a specific behavior, they at least know that their conscience has offended them, and they believe that to be wrong, and they go out and do it anyway, and they sear the conscience. So in that respect, yeah. The, they, have a, they have a, a general knowledge, but to say that they have the same level of knowledge that Scripture has is to say that we don't really need to train our conscience. So they have a general knowledge of who God is. They have a general knowledge that they are in rebellion against God, but to say that they know each and individual sin is to say that they have a level of knowledge that even Christians don't have because we have to train our consciences. Right. The soul. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the seared conscience is the, is the the soul is no longer telling you you have a problem. Right. It's no longer warning you that there's an issue. easier to solve it and you didn't think anything about it you just solved the problem or you but over time the God reveals to you you know that's not the right answer you need to tell them I'm 
not finished. Yeah, I plan on being finished last week, but I'm not finished yet. I'm not coming until I know. Yeah. The, the, the seared conscience occurs when you intentionally ignore that warning that your soul gives you. Whether or not that warning is correct or not, whether that warning is based on faulty knowledge or not, you're ignoring the warning, and it's searing the conscience, and it's making it to where the soul no longer tells you, hey, you have a problem here. So, thank you. Yeah. Uh, because it... Right. Th that's speaking of... Romans 1 is speaking of a general revelation. They, they know God exists, and they, they're without excuse for rejecting his existence. But in the, when we're talking about the conscience, we're talking about you're intentionally ignoring the warning of your conscience based on the information you have. Regardless if that information is biblical or not, you're intentionally ignoring it. So I can have a completely unbiblical standard and say, well, I'm not allowed to eat pork. And by ignoring that warning in my conscience and not dealing with it, and I just ignore it and continue to violate it, I'm searing the conscience so it no longer warns. And so what he was saying was focus back on it's not just knowledge. It's the, con it's the soul examining itself. Does that make sense? It, sometimes it could be. Sometimes, yeah. Paul called the silent conscience a seared conscience. He called it a defiled conscience. Uh, Titus 1, verse 15, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But their mind and their conscience are defiled. They have no distinction between pure and unpure. Their conscience doesn't warn them either way. So the three reasons you should not let your conscience be your guide. Your conscience can be ignorant. Your conscience can be overactive. Your conscience can be seared. Your conscience does not determine what is and is not right. Just because something feels good or feels right doesn't make it right. Scripture determines what is right. Your conscience cannot be your guide. What's the, what's the distinction between a guide here? Think about you've, you're moving to a brand new city or you're traveling. I got to L.A., I used GPS to get through L.A. because I don't know how to get anywhere in L.A. When you're in a new city that you don't know and the GPS says turn right, how many of you ignore the GPS and just keep on driving? Right? 
that's a guide. Your GPS is a guide. Your conscience doesn't work that way. Your conscience is not a guide. Your conscience is a guard. Your conscience is more like a smoke alarm. How many of you have smoke alarms in your house? Raise your hand. Okay, the rest of you, we need to talk about fire safety. Your conscience is like a smoke alarm. Your smoke alarm goes off at 2 o'clock in the morning. How many of you jump out of bed, grab your spouse, grab the kids, you have one, one under your arm, one over your shoulder, and you're calling the fire department, my house is on fire as you run out of the house. Nobody does that. That's an overactive conscience. You're giving too much weight to that alarm. Or you can go the other way. The smoke alarm goes off, and instead of getting up and finding out if it's right, you reach in, you grab two earplugs, you stick your earplugs in, you roll over, go back to sleep. That's the seared conscience. What's the proper response to the smoke alarm? And everyone's done this. You get up and you act like a golden retriever. <laughs> right? You've done it. You're going to investigate. Is this true? Your conscience is a guard. And just like the smoke alarm, it has a way of warning you. It has an alarm. They're called feelings and emotions. Notice feelings and emotions are the result of your conscience working. They are not the conscience working. But when we talk about feelings and emotions, we get these confused, the two terms, because we express both of them with the phrase, I feel. And I couldn't resist that graphic. That feeling that you're feeling is a feeling you can feel. We express both our feelings and our emotions with the same phrase, I feel. Consider this paragraph. When I feel hurt because I feel my husband has wronged me, then I don't feel like going to talk to him. Instead, I feel like leaving because I feel he won't listen anyway. I feel justified in the anger I feel. I don't feel the Bible applies to our particular conflicts. Notice how many different ways she used the phrase, I feel. So when you tell someone, well, I feel this, you really haven't said a whole lot. David Paulson gives four ways that we use the phrase, I feel. I feel describes a sense perception. I can say, I feel this podium, and it is smooth. It's describing my interaction with the world around me through my senses. Or you can say, I feel, and express a thought, a belief, or an attitude. I feel Whataburger is the best fast food joint around. I feel this president is the best president or the worst president ever. I'm just expressing an opinion, a thought, or an attitude. Or you can say, I feel and convey some level of desire. I feel like going to Whataburger for lunch. Can I get an amen? All right. <laughs> All right. And I feel can also express an emotion. You can express emotions through I feel. I feel happy. I feel sad. I feel joyful. I feel angry. That's the expression of an emotion. And the point here is, whenever you say, I feel, you're not always expressing emotion, are you? So what are feelings? Feelings, Sam Williams defines them this way. The sense perception of in, an internal or external event, which is typically classified into binary categories of experience. Good, bad, pleasant, unpleasant, smooth, rough, hard, soft, hot, cold, are the subjective experience and report of an emotion. Let me rephrase that. A feeling is the experience of something that happens. I can experience the heat outside. It feels hot. I feel warm. I can be in church and I can say, I feel cold. I'm describing the experience of something. 
or I can describe the experience of an emotion. Sadness is an emotion that you experience, and you know, the, you know it's sadness because you know what it feels like. You know the experience of it. Jay Adams said it this way, The word feeling refers to the perception of a bodily state as pleasant or unpleasant. Fundamentally, there are two categories into which all may be classified, good or bad. One more. Now, okay, so those are feelings. Feelings are your perception. They are your experience of something. They can be the experience of the physical world, or they can be the experience of something internal, like an emotion. Which brings us to the question, what are emotions? Emotions are organic bodily responses that are largely involuntary and are triggered by behavior, thoughts, and attitudes. Notice, emotions are what? They are responses. They are organic bodily responses to what happens in the world. You shouldn't be governed by your emotions because your emotions are responses. They are largely involuntary. When someone finds out their dog was hit by a car, the sadness is not a choice. That is the natural response of the body. You need to understand that emotions are given to you by God. God has emotions. God has anger. God can be happy. And you are made in the image of God, and you experience emotions. Probably not exactly the same way as God experiences them, and his have no sin attached to them. But that's where your emotions come from. They come from God. He is the one who has given them to you. They proceed from your heart. We talked about the heart being the seat of intellect and knowledge and the mind. The secondary part of that is emotions. Emotions can be reactive or proactive, and I'm going to explain that. Reactive emotions occur after a situation that was not planned for or anticipated. Take a little thought journey with me. A couple, they've been married for four years. They're a young couple. They are Christians. They love the Lord. They're active in their church. They read their Bibles. They pray. And this couple desperately wants to have children. And they earnestly desire to have children, but they just have no success. So they go for their annual checkup. They get their checkup. They sit down with the doctor. The doctor looks at the man and says, Sir, you're in excellent physical health. I can tell you've been taking care of yourself. Well done. Keep up the good work. He turns to the woman and he says, ma'am, you also are in excellent physical health. You've been taking care of yourself. Well done. Oh, by the way, you're pregnant. What emotions do you think she's going to have? Happy? Happy? Surprise. Surprise, shock, joy, right? She's going to experience positive emotions. Take the same scenario. We're going to change it just a little bit. Now we have an unbelieving couple. They are not married. They've been living together. They've been sleeping together. But they do not want children. They're like a lot of couples these days. They want puppies, not babies. They have no desire for children at all. They go to the same doctor. They get the same checkup. They get the same diagnosis. Excellent physical health. Oh, by the way, you're pregnant. What emotions is she going to experience? Despair, fear, anger, sadness, anxiety. We have a couple, same age, same time in life, same diagnosis, two completely different responses. And they are reacting to the news that they have received, an unexpected situation. 
but their reactions, their emotional responses are different because they have different beliefs and values and thoughts behind those. They believe very different things about children. One couple loves children. They desire babies. They think babies are a gift from God. The other side can't stand them, and they don't want anything to do with them. And based on their understanding and their knowledge, they have an emotional response to that information. Do you see how emotions can be reactive? They could, yeah, depending on, depending on their beliefs, yeah. Uh, they can also be proactive. Proactive emotions, come on now. Proactive emotions occur when they motivate the person to anticipate and plan for a future event. Think of a seven-year-old boy who's told he's going to Disneyland. Young man, two months we're going to Disneyland. How does he respond? He doesn't sleep for two months. He's bouncing off the walls. He's got a big smile on his face. He's excited. He's happy. He has that emotional response because he has a certain set of values and beliefs about Disneyland. You know, he's thinking Mickey Mouse, Daffy Duck, Goofy, all the fun he's going to have. And the emotions are the response of his analysis of Disneyland. And the hyperactivity that you see as a result is his body preparing him for engagement in the park. He wants to have enough energy so he can participate in all of the activities, and he will outlast mom and dad by several hours, right? Those are reactive and proactive emotions. Jeff Forey said this, emotions are best understood as psychosomatic phenomena. They typically represent a certain assessment of a situation relative to a person's values, which in turn prompts a feeling state that motivates or prepares the person for a stereotypical behavioral response. I know that's rough. Therefore, emotions have two components, an internal experience and an external expression. Emotions have two sides to them. There's the side that nobody else sees. That's the part that you feel. And then there's the part that everybody sees, and that's what you do in your behavior. So a person can feel happy. That's an internal feeling or internal emotion. And that emotion will be expressed physically with a smile or some other behavior. I got a diagram here for you. Take any situation, going to Disneyland. The child is going to examine and think about Disneyland. He's going to use his understandings of Disneyland to make an assessment about this news and he's going to Disneyland. That assessment, that thinking, is going to produce an emotional response. He's going to be happy. He's going to be excited. The result of his thinking and the result of his emotions will result in a certain behavior, i.e. bouncing off the walls, right? Here's what we need to understand on the Christian life. Your behavior also produces emotions. We oftentimes think that our behavior and our emotions are disconnected. They're not. Behavior is the result of emotion, and emotion can be the result of behavior. Dr. Robert Smith, as a person encounters circumstances in life, he evaluates them as good or bad. Disneyland would be good. That is a thinking process that may occur almost instantly. This thinking and evaluation then produces the feelings he experiences. 
It also leads to his behavior. The behavior may also produce feelings. Here it is. We feel the way we feel because we think the way we think and act the way we act. Now, I'd like to apply this to everyday life and wrap all this together by talking about depression. CDC, from 2009 to 2012, said 7.6% of Americans from age 12 and up had depression. Now, if you assume there was 300 million people in America, that means 22 million people experienced depression during that time period. Of those 3%, they said had severe symptoms. They did not define what they meant by severe symptoms, so I don't know. 90% of those with severe symptoms said their depression affected them at work, at home, and in their social activities. Now, we talked about the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, that psychiatric Bible they use to diagnose everybody. Here's just a few of the symptoms that they said occur. We're not going to go through all of these. They said five or more of the following symptoms have been present during the same two-week period and represent a change from the previous functioning. So you need five or more of these within the same two weeks, and it has to represent a change in your behavior. If this is just the way you always have behaved, you can't use it. Okay? This is a change. The key two are these two. They said at least one of the symptoms is either depressed mood or a loss of interest or pleasure. What's the difference between just being sad and being depressed? Your dog gets hit by a car, you're going to be sad. Depression is not only just negative, depressed emotions, but it's also a result that changes your behavior. The things that you once used to do, you stop doing. The responsibilities you used to take care of, you no longer take care of them. The things that you used to find joy in, you now no longer find joy in those things. And when you, people are depressed, they say something like this. I have an emotional problem. Please don't use that phrase. You, you don't have an emotional problem. And I know you don't have an emotional problem because you're depressed. Your emotions are working exactly the way they're supposed to work. The problem is not emotional. Remember, emotions are a response to behavior and thinking. Right? You don't have an emotional problem. Let's open up the Bible. I want to show you an example of depression in the Bible. Genesis chapter 4. You know this story. Genesis chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Cain found himself in a situation. He made his offering to God. God did not accept his offering. And Cain responded with an emotion, anger. And it says his countenance fell. Uh, one dictionary said, to show the back of the neck rather than the face. His face fell. He became depressed. He had severe negative emotions. Hey, what happened to my... 
You guys gotta tell me when that happens. It, it happens. Thank you, Mike. Alright. His face fell. He became depressed. Now look at verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Why are you responding the way you are? What's wrong? Then he gives the solution. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted? You did something inappropriate. You had an unbiblical action. You offered a sacrifice to God that he did not like. That produced negative emotions. The solution is not for you to wallow in it. The solution is for you to change your thinking and your behavior. He says that in the next verse. And if you do well, whoops. Oh my goodness. Okay, go to verse 7. And if you do well, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. You respond to the depression by changing the way you think, aligning your thinking with God's word, and then starting to do those things that you have refused to do. And starting to align your behavior with what God says. And when you do that, you will start engendering positive emotions. Your countenance will be lifted. If you don't, and you respond in more unbiblical ways, he says sin is crouching at the door. It's going to lead you into more and more sin. Where did it lead Cain? To killing his brother. And then if you keep reading, Cain then started blaming everybody in the world for his problems. All right, I have another diagram for you. You encounter a problem. You're going to evaluate that problem based on your understanding, your beliefs, your attitudes. You're going to evaluate the problem. And then you're going to respond to it. If you evaluate that problem and you respond in an unbiblical way, you will reap bad emotions, negative emotions. You will not feel good after doing it. And if you're controlled by your feelings, that bad emotion, that negative emotion will result in you stopping certain activities. You will have decreased function. You'll start putting off responsibilities. You'll start putting off hobbies and things that you enjoy. Why? Because you're governed not by what you know is right. You're governed by how you feel. And because you don't feel good, you're going to stop doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're going to avoid the responsibilities that you know you're supposed to be doing. And the problem here is when you do this and when you avoid doing what you're supposed to be doing, that's an unbiblical response. That's not the way you're supposed to be responding to life. And that's going to produce more negative emotions. It's going to produce more misery on your part. And that cycle just keeps going. The way to break that cycle, well, this is not the way to break the cycle. Psychology says the problem is not the decreased function. That's not the issue. Psychology says your problem is here. The problem that you have is not your behavior. It's not your thinking. The problem that you have is those bad, pesky emotions. And those emotions are what's causing the original problem. 
And so what we need to do is we need to change your feeling. We need to make you feel better. And so we're going to medicate you. But we're not going to medicate you for the original problem. We're going to medicate you so that you feel better. So one person described this as uh, giving morphine to a person who sat on attack. I think of it like you accidentally shoot yourself in the leg, you go to the doctor, and the doctor's like, wow, you must be in pain. Here's some morphine. Call me in the morning. You didn't solve the problem. When you're experiencing negative emotions, let's say you fall into a sin and you feel horrible about it, the solution is not to sit there and wallow in it and put off responsibilities and avoid the things that you know you're supposed to be doing. I think everyone's done this. You fall into a sin and you say, well, I need to put myself in spiritual time out for a while. And so you stop reading the Bible, which you know you're supposed to be doing. And you stop praying, which you know you're supposed to be doing. And you stop assembling with the saints, which you know you're supposed to be doing. And those unbiblical responses produce more negative emotions. And if you continue to live based on your emotions, you're going to continue to do the same thing. And it's only going to get worse and worse and worse. What's the solution to sin? Confession, repentance, right? That's the means of having positive emotions. That's the means of getting out of this little cycle. All right. Next week, we're going to talk more about repentance and forgiveness. Any questions? My understanding is the antidepressants only change emotion. What about like postpartum depression? That's the real thing. That's what's triggered. Yeah, but it's a depression. Yeah, there are there are biological. The question is: Is there a biological? Is there a biological cause for depression? And do they actually deal with that cause? First, there are biological things that can cause you to be depressed. Certain medications can cause you to feel depressed. If you're on those medications, just understand that's one of the side effects and you still need to behave not according to how you feel, but according to what you know is right. Okay? So there are biological conditions that can cause depression. But in the Christian walk, your behavior and your inappropriate responses to sin can also cause you to feel depressed. Right? Does that answer the question? Okay. So if there's a biological cause for it, go see the doctor. Have the doctor deal with the biological problem. If it's medication, maybe your doctor can change the meds. But if there's not a biological cause, you need to address your thinking and your behavior patterns because that's what's causing those negative emotions. Any other questions? Yeah, people can make something. Uh, the question was, can someone make up a biological cause for it? And the answer to that is yes. So that's where having a church keeps you accountable. 
having other Christians involved keeps you accountable. Um, you need to actually have a doctor tell you there's a physical problem. It's the physical meds you're taking, or it's a physical sim- sickness, not just, well, you have an emotional problem. No, you don't have an emotional problem. You, you have a, a behavior problem. Uh, I would ask him to prove it. I, I would ask him to prove it. If they can prove it biologically, run a blood test, show me I have, a, I have an illness. I'll listen to you. I have no problem with that. But if you're just going to take my behavior and label it as an illness, I, I'm sorry, that's not acceptable. If I'm experiencing negative emotions and you can't show me a biological cause for it, those negative emotions are given by God to warn me I have a problem. I should listen to them the same way I listen to the fire alarm. But I correct those emotions not by smacking, you know, hitting the smoke alarm with a hammer. I correct those emotions by changing the way I think and changing my behavior. Any other questions? Comments? All right. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for this time that we've had. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us to live our lives not according to what we feel or how we feel, but according to what you have told us is the right way to live. What you have defined as right and wrong, not what our feelings and our emotions tell us is right and wrong. And we ask that you bless our time of worship this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.